Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. Hosted by me, Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren, our team of patriot narrators, that being myself, David Derwicki, who's on vacation this episode, B. Reasonable's Mike Gerard Skenechny and Brent Bassett continue our intense review of the Declaration of Independence. These are tumultuous times, and understanding the basis for our freedoms is essential to defending our liberty and equality now and in the future. If you missed prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. This is especially true if you missed the episode on the Social Compact, because that in particular plays right into this episode. But if not, Strap on your seatbelts and please join us right here and right now. When we return, we will explore the vital sentence, quote, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, unquote. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. As we have discussed, our Declaration of Independence made America unique in many ways. Not only did it create a new nation, but more vitally, it announced to the world our dedication to certain first principles that should be our pole star as we navigate the rough terrain of world events. We are continuing our exploration of the third sentence of the Declaration, which is as follows, quote, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed." As a quick recap, we believe in self-evident truths, one of which is that we have unalienable rights. Rights which are born in us. Nature and nature's God, not government, have endowed us with those rights. Among those rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This sentence of the Declaration of Independence recognizes as a self-evident truth that government is established to protect those unalienable rights. In fact, it goes a step further and says that the origin of government is the protection of those rights. To protect ourselves from a state of nature in which there is a war of all against all, we have created governments. In other words, we consent to a government being established so we can protect our life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. We have also reviewed how in America we actually engaged in a living experiment in creating a social compact when we established new colonies, and then again when we declared independence, and then yet again when we adopted the state and federal constitutions. The first principle of the social compact generates two logical possibilities regarding the scope and reach of governmental authority. Either number one, the government, to preserve the peace and maintain order, is all-powerful, after all we have consented to it, or number two, the government, because it has been granted its power to preserve the inalienable rights of individuals, is limited to possessing only those powers necessary to accomplish that aim. The choice at its extreme becomes absolute power or a limited free government. Thomas Hobbes, the English philosopher, had a clear vision, absolute power. According to Hobbes, because individuals have consented to be ruled by the government, the government can do no wrong. 
There are no limits upon governmental authority. Doctrines such as limited government, federalism, and respect for individual rights are unnecessary because the will of the people reigns supreme over individual rights and desires. Hobbes asserted that, quote, nothing done to a man by his own consent can be injury, unquote. Hobbes' conception of consent simply required an individual to consent to being a member of the society. As such, an individual need not consent to particular governmental powers or specific acts. He or she simply submitted to the rule of the government for all purposes. In short, Hobbes advocated the view that the sovereign has control over all things, including life, liberty, property, and justice. Now, in prior episodes, we have explored many all-powerful governments. Benito Mussolini's fascist Italy, Adolf Hitler's fascist Germany, Pol Pot's Cambodian nightmare, the Soviet Union's crushing totalitarian state, Mao Zedong's communist nightmare, just to name a few. We will explore this idea in a few other contexts to drill the point home. Some of these will be more fun, and I use that term cautiously, than others. I say fun, maybe entertaining is the better term, because sometimes fictional accounts helps depoliticize our understanding. But we will begin with something most of us think we know, but not really, and it involved the most advanced civilization for centuries, one that still affects our culture, and we still marvel at this ancient civilization's amazing accomplishments. To begin our journey, we turn to our, our fabulous guest star, our dear friend Mike Gerard Skinechny, who we have affectionately nicknamed Skin. Although now he goes by the fancy moniker, Mike Gerard, in his own podcast, Be Reasonable, with Mike Gerard. Skin, please present your first Skin segment. Thank you, Judge Warren. Now, what the good judge has been teasing you about is ancient Egypt. And if you want to know about unlimited power, this is a fine example. The pharaohs began ruling ancient Egypt approximately around 300 BC, and they ruled somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 years, and about 30 dynasties held Egypt in its thrall for millennia. The United States is not even 250 years old, so this was an extremely powerful and stable form of rule, at least more than 10 times longer than our relatively young republic. During the Old Kingdom, which lasted a stretch of several centuries, the pharaohs were considered to be living gods, not anointed by God to rule, such as the divine right in Europe, but actual living gods. And with that belief, they had incredible power. The pharaoh had absolute control over everything. In the Middle Kingdom, which lasted centuries after the Old Kingdom, the pharaohs were understood to be representatives of the gods, but it really didn't mean that much of a difference in substance. In political matters, the pharaoh's command was law. Nothing was up for debate. There was no legislative assembly. He didn't bargain with interest groups. There were no elections or pandering to public opinion. No vetoes, no checks, no balances, no federalism, no constitution. What he wanted happened. And justice? The pharaoh resolved any disputes. There was no right to appeal, no written opinions, no need to consult laws or legislative intent, no constitutional doctrines, no considering the opinions of judges, no appeals. His decision was final. 
Religion? The Pharaoh was a living God. He assisted those who died to pass through the afterlife. There was no dogma, no church readings, no doctrines or church courts. As God, he was, well, God. Now, economically, the Pharaoh owned the land. There was no private property. He owned everyone's personal property. He owned the valuable coins and gems. He could take what he wanted and left the remains for the rabble. He could make you rich or impoverished with just a snap of his fingers. Now, obviously, there was a set of classes. There was a noble class, priests, scribes, skilled workers, unskilled workers, and slaves. But that was important just for dealing with each other. The king god, or the pharaoh, ruled over everything. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around such absolute, unaccountable, and massive power, but one of the greatest civilizations in all of world history lived that way for thousands of years. Back to you, Judge Warren. Thanks, Ken. I mean, Mike Gerard. thanks for being reasonable, even if the pharaohs were not. Just to illustrate this point, we don't need to take a time machine back like H.G. Wells or Dark to understand this idea. Well, at least not on Earth. Our next example will be taking us to one of our modern-day myths. George Lucas's Star Wars saga happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. For this segment, we will be joined by our guest star, Brent Bassett, for Brent's Brief. Now, there is a little bit of a debate about whether he looks more like Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, or Chewbacca. I'll let you ponder that. Brent, the floor is yours. Thank you, Judge Warren. I'm not sure how I take that comparison, but we all know I look like Han Solo, the young one in the first movie. <clears throat> if you haven't seen Star Wars or need a refresher, that's quite all right. The arc is pretty simple. In a galaxy far, far away, there is an interstellar republic that joins thousands of worlds. It is governed by a galactic senate, which has representatives from each homeworld. The peace is kept by the Jedi Order, basically a group of knights who have amazing powers by tapping into the Force, an energy that connects all living things. The Jedi are attuned and use the light side of the Force. The Republic eventually is subverted by the Sith, the enemy of the Jedi, who are basically the mirror image of the Jedi, although there are only two Sith who tap into the dark side of the Force. Now they released Episode 4 of the Star Wars Saga first, so by that point, the Sith had won, the Republic had fallen, and in its stead was the Empire. Judge Warren is definitely in the minority here, but his personal favorite movie is The Revenge of the Sith, which is Episode 3, when the Sith are maneuvering to take power. At one point, Anakin Skywalker, one of the most powerful Jedi, who has been designated as the Chosen One to bring balance to the Force, has unknowingly been pulled toward the dark side by the Chancellor of the Galactic Senate, Palpatine. At this point, the Republic is still free, but it is being corrupted. Secretly, Palpatine is a Sith Lord who has been grooming and mentoring Anakin for a decade, and he urges Anakin to join him to take over the Republic. Anakin refuses Palpatine's offer and instead reveals Palpatine's secret to the Jedi Council, and four of the Council members leave Anakin and confront Palpatine. In just a few seconds, Palpatine kills three of the Jedi, but he appears bested by the fourth Jedi, Mace Windu, played by Samuel L. Jackson. And this is where our movie cut takes place. 
Palpatine is lying in a prone position on the floor. Windu has his lightsaber pointed at Palpatine, trying to decide whether he should kill Palpatine right then and there, or to try to arrest him. Listen carefully to what happens next. I, I can't hold on any longer. I am going to end this once and for all. You can't. He must stand trial. He has control of the Senate and the courts. He's too dangerous to be left alive. I'm too weak. Oh, don't kill me. Please. It's not the Jedi way. He must live. Please don't. I need him. Please don't. No. So what happened there is that Mace Windu decides he has to kill Palpatine. Palpatine pleads for his life. Mace moves to strike down Palpatine. Anakin intervenes and slices off Windu's hand, and then Palpatine unleashes Force Lightning, which fries Windu and flings him to his death off the building. It's an exciting scene. And what did Palpatine yell while he was torching poor Mace Windu? Power! Unlimited power! That is what this nine-movie saga is all about fighting over whether the Emperor, or Empire, or later the First Order, was going to have unlimited power. Fast forward a few scenes in The Revenge of the Sith, and Palpatine goes to the Galactic Senate. Listen in. In order to ensure the security and continuing stability, the Republic will be reorganized into the First Galactic Empire! So this is how liberty dies. With thunderous applause. Person that said this is how liberty dies is Anakin's wife, Queen Amaldala. She is actually an elected queen. And she's right. The Emperor takes total control. He eventually shuts down the Senate and uses the killer Death Star to annihilate an entire peaceful world. Later, in Episode 8, the successor to the Empire, the First Order, builds a Starkiller base and wipes out the New Republic's capital, Hosnian Prime. What? Wait a minute. Didn't they blow up a planet in the original Star Wars movie, Episode 4, A New Hope? Well, let's just admit that the last three episodes of the nine-movie series is not known for originality or logic. Now I understand why Judge Warren loves the Revenge of the Sith. It shows how a Republic can die by suicide. A warning for us all. Evil is always in the background, ready to spring into action whenever it can. And that unlimited power is inevitably tyrannical and genocidal. We learned that on Earth with Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Pol Pot. Well, I guess now that we are out of light speed, we return to Judge Warren. Thank you, Brent. May the force be with you. Our next example of unlimited power is another fictional rendition, but this time on Earth, in the modern age. 
To give you some insights on this riveting and illuminating classic, we will be turning it over to our second skin segment. Mike Gerard, the floor is yours. Aw oh, man, I wanted to do the Star Wars segment. Well, I get to talk about this next illustration of Unlimited Power, which was written by English novelist George Orwell and published on June 8th, 1949. Yes, it's 1984, a novel, and it is a masterpiece in every meaning of the word. It's a prophecy about what the world could have turned out to be by 1984 if certain dark trends had continued. Remember, when the book was written, we were in the beginning stages of the Cold War. The communist bloc in the East was brutally suppressing its people, and the Western Democratic Republics were trying to coalesce against the Soviet threat. Now, the setting of the book is Airstrip 1, which we know today is Great Britain, and Britain in the book is part of the superstate of Oceania. The protagonist is Winston Smith. The plot here is just fantastic, but we'll focus narrowly on just a few key points. Winston had a very interesting job. He works for the Ministry of Love as a writer. His job? To rewrite newspaper articles from the past to reflect the party. And that's party with a capital P. And the party wants the population to think about history. Yes, Winston literally rewrites history. In 1984, the state is much more devious than the pharaohs or Emperor Palpatine. Here, they twist every word. The Ministry of Love, of course, is really a ministry of terror, hate, and war. They bend and redefine words beyond recognition. The language itself is no longer English. It's newspeak. And in addition to your run-of-the-mill police force, there's the thought police called ThinkPole. Oceana's slogans are, War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. And Winston is a critical cog in the state's machinery. Since the state controlled the information flow, it controlled the people. Winston knew this better than anyone because he was fabricating the information flow for the government. One morning, Winston reflected that even the country Oceana was at war with could be changed overnight. The party said that Oceana had never been in alliance with Eurasia. He, Winston Smith, knew that Oceana had been in alliance with Eurasia as short a time as four years ago. But where did that knowledge exist? Only in his own consciousness, which in any case must soon be annihilated. And if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. In another passage, Winston tries to explain to his lover Julia that people were disappearing and dying. But not only that, they were being erased as if they had never lived. Julia replies, well, people are being killed off all the time. Why worry? Winston responds. He tried to make her understand. This was an exceptional case. It wasn't just a question of somebody being killed. Do you realize that the past, starting from yesterday, has been actually abolished? 
If it survives anywhere, it's in a few solid objects with no words attached to them, like that lump of glass there. Already, we know almost literally nothing about the Revolution and the years before the Revolution. Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book has been rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statute and street and building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And that process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. I know, of course, that the past is falsified, but it would never be possible for me to prove it, even when I did the falsification myself. After the thing is done, no evidence ever remains. The only evidence is inside my own mind, and I don't know with any certainty that any other human being shares my memories. Just in that one instance, in my whole life, I did possess actual concrete evidence after the event, years after it. In the tyranny, there is no history. It's just whatever the state wants to be true at that moment. It also imposed doublethink, the ability to hold simultaneously in one's mind two contradictory beliefs and believe them both. There was no truth, just whatever the government wanted. There's a massive surveillance state watching almost everything everyone does. Potential opponents to the state are liquidated, wiped out in reality, and wiped out in the past. And why? Why do all this? Eventually, Winston is caught, trying to join a revolutionary resistance. O'Brien, yes, he only has a single name, tortures Winston and explains what it's all about. The wars, the rewriting of history, the disappearing people... Double thing. We are different from the oligarchies of the past in that we know what we are doing. The German Nazis and the Russian communists came very close to us in their methods, but they never had the courage to recognize their own motives. They pretended, perhaps they even believed, that they had seized power unwillingly and for a limited time, and that just around the corner there lay a paradise where human beings would be free and equal. We are not like that. We know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. Power is not a means, it is an end. Did you catch that? Power is not a means, it's an end. Just like Palpatine, just like the Pharaoh, power for power's sake. The end of government was not to protect the rights of the people, but to perpetuate the state like an insatiable monster devouring everything for the sake of devouring everything. And now, it's back to Brent Bassett for another brilliant Brent's Brief. Thanks, Mike Gerard. Our last fictional account is The Lord of the Rings. This is a way too complicated a story. It is 600,000 words and six books to explain. But there is a bottom line. Yes, there are knights, hobbits, orcs, wizards, ents, elves, Dwarves, numerous natural and unnatural creatures, giant eagles, knights in armor, skirmishes, flights, magic weapons, crystals, towers, castles, fortresses, and all kinds of interesting intrigue, skirmishes, love, friendships, and fantastic mammoth battles. But in the end, it is a simple story. An evil wizard, Sauron, has created a master ring of power that allows him to conquer the world. Just before he is able to win... The ring is cut from his hand, 
and he basically dies and dissipates. But because the ring survived, so does he. 2,500 years later, he starts to reform and builds an evil army. He can take Middle-earth, that is what the land is called, if he can just get his ring of power back. A hobbit named Frodo, a good-natured, jovial, human-like creature who was about half of the size and strength of a normal man, is entrusted with the ring. But he has no idea this is the ring of power. His friend, Gandalf, a good wizard, figures out the mystery and tells Frodo that he possesses the strongest weapon in Middle-earth. Frodo blanches and immediately tries to give it away. Here is the classic scene. Take it, Gandalf. Take it. No, Frodo. You must take it. You cannot offer me this ring. I'm giving it to you. Don't tempt me, Frodo. I dare not take it. Not even to keep it safe. Understand, Frodo. I would use this ring from a desire to do good. But through me, it would wield a power too great and terrible to imagine. Amazing, right? Frodo tries to give away the hydrogen bomb to Gandalf, who is already a super powerful wizard. Gandalf says no. If he took the ring, he would become the most powerful person in Middle-earth, and it would corrupt him and do great evil through him. Gandalf understands what happens when you have unlimited power like Palpatine, the Pharaoh, or Oceana. Anyone, him, Frodo, you, even with good intentions, will inevitably do evil with unlimited power. Fast forward, and Frodo, joined with Gandalf and a group of companions called the Fellowship of the Ring, must undertake an almost impossible task to destroy the ring. They need to destroy the ring because, number one, they can't let the evil Sauron regain it, and number two, no one else can wield it without being corrupted. The catch? The ring can only be destroyed by throwing it back from whence it came, a fiery volcano called Mount Doom, deep in the enemy Sauron's territory. Fast forward a bit more, and the Fellowship of the Ring is resting in an elven country ruled by beautiful elf maiden Queen Lady Galadriel in control with her king. Lady Galadriel allows Frodo to see what could happen in the future through a magical mirror, including the takeover of Middle-earth by Sauron. She also prophesies that threats to the Fellowship exist within the Fellowship. She seems so pure, so beautiful, so wise, so good, that Frodo, without talking to anyone else, offers her the ring right there on the spot. Listen in. The Fellowship is breaking. It has already begun. He will try to take the ring. You know of whom I speak. One by one, it will destroy them all. If you ask it of me, I will give you the one ring. You offer it to me freely. I do not deny that my heart has greatly desired this. of a dark lord, you would have a queen, not dark, but beautiful and terrible as the lord, treacherous as the sea, stronger than the 
this alone. You are a ring bearer, Frodo. To bear a ring of power is to be alone. Again, another person, much more powerful than Frodo, declines the ring. She, like Gandalf, could have ruled the world. But did you hear what she said? She would be terrible, treacherous, stronger than the foundations of the earth. All would love her and despair. But she passes the test, turns down the ring, and will diminish. The Lord of the Rings shows the dangers of absolute power and the need to reject it at all costs. The power to do good is the power to do evil. Power alone is seductive and corrupting. It must be rejected and must be stopped if anyone tries to gain it. Judge Warren, back to you. Thanks, Brent. Who would have guessed that when we started talking about the first principle of limited government, we would explore ancient Egypt, the galaxy, Middle Earth, and 1984. But they are all very insightful. We will be grounding the rest of our discussion about unlimited and absolute power firmly in history. And don't worry, no more about absolute dictators or police states. We need to address unlimited power from a quarter you might not normally consider. The people. See, the idea of unlimited power is not dictated by the form of government. Unlimited power usually comes from dictators, kings, political parties, and military juntas, but it can also come from democracy. In fact, the founding fathers generally believed that the people, if left to their own devices, were likely to kill off liberty either through anarchy or by the capturing of political power by a demagogue. If the society went into anarchy, eventually the government would collapse and a strong man would take control. If there was a demagogue, he would just become dictatorial right away. Either way, pure, unadulterated democracy was likely to lead, ironically and inevitably, to tyranny. Now, there are plenty of examples in history where a democracy or republic degenerates into an authoritarian regime. Think of the Weimar Republic electing Hitler, or the Italians electing Hitler's mentor, Benito Mussolini. The more interesting and cautionary examples are those in which the people themselves just run amok. Of course, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy were a century after the founding generation. They would not have had those tyrannies in mind. Instead, one of the examples the founders looked to was, believe it or not, the birthplace of democracy, the ancient city-state of Athens. To review this for us, we are bringing back Mike Gerard for his final skin segment. And then Brent gets to do Lord of the Rings? How is this even fair? Well, this next example is absolutely fascinating. Now, we tend to use sloppy language today when we refer to our form of government. Many people refer to the United States as a democracy, and technically, that's not true at all. A democracy means rule by the people, but in the United States of America, with the exception of some state ballot initiatives, we don't vote directly on the law. We elect state legislatures and the Congress to do that. We do elect governors, but heck, we don't even directly elect the president. He's chosen through electors. And the judges? On the federal level, they're appointed for life. But ancient Athens? That was a democracy. In fact, the word democracy in Greek, demokratia, is derived from demos, which means the village or the entire body of citizens, 
and kratos, which means rule. So, rule by the people. And this is how Athens was ruled. In particular, from 508 BC until 322 BC, all of the male citizens of Greece had the right to make the laws. Now, books upon books have been written about this fascinating form of government, and we'll just highlight a few vital key features. First, the key power was the Assembly of Demos, also called the Ecclesia. The assembly was composed of all Greek male citizens, and to be a citizen, you had to be a man who, when he turned 18, served two years as a military cadet. And that was it. It was sexist, and it excluded slaves, but it was by far the most democratic form of government for thousands and thousands of years. They met in the open for all to see. On the top of a hill called the Pinks, it had 40 regular meetings a year, and special meetings could also be called. From the lowly servant to the farmer to the highest general, they were all equal in the assembly. The assembly could generally propose and do anything. Any citizen could propose anything, and the whole assembly could ignore, defeat, or approve whatever was proposed. Anyone could speak. The herald would begin the session with, Who wishes to speak? There was no constitution like we think of it, although some laws were difficult to change because the law itself provided so. The majority ruled, and the voting was almost always done by a show of hands. They could pass laws which were supposed to be more general and last permanently, and they could also pass decrees which were temporary or specific decisions. Again, the people could decide anything, which included war, finances, trials, trade, food supplies, foreign policy, and spending money. They also handled mundane matters like the proper qualifications for ferry boat captains. They impeached and executed generals. There was no separation of powers. The assembly both passed the law and administered it. The assembly was composed of between 30,000 and 60,000 men, depending on the time, and they met about 40 times a year. Now, second, the administration fell to a subset of the assembly. Since the men needed to farm, trade, wage war, and do other daily activities, a council called the Bouli was composed of 500 men to administer the government. The members of the Bouli were chosen by lot, and only served for one year at a time and could never serve more than two non-consecutive terms. The bully met every day. Third, there were the popular courts, called the Hellenia. There's some scholarly debate about exactly how that worked. It appears that there were about 6,000 members, but usually it met in smaller groups of 500 or more, called the Dicasteria. Every day, at least 501 jurors were chosen by lot. Like legislation, all it took was a majority to decide a case, including criminal charges with death penalties. Since it was a democracy, there was no judge presiding over the trial. Cases were brought by citizens, and basically they made up their own charges and claims. The parties didn't have attorneys, they prosecuted or defended themselves. 
although on occasion a party would hire a speechwriter, but the party had to deliver the speech even if it was written by somebody else. And there was a special court, the Council of Aeropagus, or the Hills of Ares, which tried murders and other grave crimes. It only had nine members who served for life. Now, this was really the one exception to the full, unadulterated democracy. It was a remnant from when Athens was ruled by an executive council. But its powers had long given away to the assembly and to the dicasteria, except for those murders and related trials. And if you think that as a democracy, Athens was peaceful, well, think again. Greek historian Professor David Pritchard explained how democratic politics affected militarism. The staging of plays, as well as political debates in front of working-class citizens, created a pro-war culture. This militarism encouraged increasing numbers of poor Athenians to join the armed forces and to vote more often in favor of wars. Democratic debate taught Athenian combatants as well to take initiative during military campaigns. This unexpected record of democratic military success refutes the belief that democracies are bad at wars. In fact, what made Athens a superpower were its democratic institutions. Classical Athens calls into question the belief that democracy leads to peace. The Athenians were better democrats than we are. At the same time, the democracy that they had perfected did not stop them from creating a veritable killing machine. They waged war nonstop for two centuries. In doing so, they unleashed unprecedented destruction on ancient Greece and killed civilians by their thousands. For us, classical Athens must therefore serve as a warning. Yeah, I don't know. It's all Greek to me. But... Some of the most glorious victories were won by the Athenians when they were a democracy. Marathon and Salamis are just two examples, and they were there at Thermopylae of the 300 Spartans fame, too. In addition, they could turn their aggression inward. Putting aside the trial and execution of Jesus of Nazareth, perhaps one of the most famous perversions of justice in history, that was at the hands of the Athenian popular court. Now, Socrates is a fountainhead of Western civilization. He developed critical thinking to a state never before recorded, and he created groundbreaking philosophy. Rationality and inquiry were almost his inventions. He pursued the truth in a city-state run by the people, and you'd think he'd be safe. But telling the truth is always dangerous, especially in an unfettered democracy. As an old man, he was hauled before the court and stood trial. Xenophon, a leading Greek light in his own right, summarized the charges as refusing to recognize the gods acknowledged by the state and importing strange divinities of his own and of corruption of the young. With regard to the religious charges, Xenophon reported that his accusers explained that Socrates did not hold discussions on the nature of the universe as most of the others did, as for himself he was always discussing human problems. Socrates believed that the gods know everything, word, deed, and silent thought alike, and that they were present everywhere, and that they gave signs to men about all human affairs. Now, although this might be par for the course for today's major religions, it was sacrilege in Athens. 
Xenophon also explained that certain associates of Socrates wrought the greatest harm to the state. One, Cretius, was the most rapacious and violent of all in the oligarchy, while Alcibiades, another, was the most intemperate and insolent of all the democracy. Socrates taught his companions to abuse their parents by persuading them that he made them wiser than their parents and by claiming that according to the law it was possible for a son, if he proved his father insane, to imprison even his own father. The prosecutor also said that Socrates claimed that the only men worthy of honor were those who knew their duty and could explain what they knew. Socrates, he said, also made the youth think that other men were of no account in comparison with himself, for he persuaded them that he was the wisest man and the most competent in making others wise. Stated in more modern language, he ginned up young people to disrespect their parents, and his students were critics of the status quo. The stuff at the heart of teenage angst and core political speech, and he was on trial for his life. Socrates was defiant. He explained why he did what he did and why it was no crime. As reported by his greatest student, Plato, he explained that he was under attack for seeking and telling the truth, which, of course, generated enemies. What I have told you, Athenians, is the truth. I neither conceal nor do I suppress anything, great or small, and yet I know that it is just the plainness of speech which makes me enemies. But that is only a proof that my words are true, and that the prejudice against me and the causes of it are what I have said. Now, Socrates went a step further. He explained that he would rather die than submit to censorship and perpetuate lies. His sacred duty to God mandated that he not give up his freedom to speak and kill the truth. I do know very well that it is evil and base to do wrong and to disobey my superior whether he be a man or God. And I will never do what I know to be evil and shrink in fear from what, for all that I can tell, may be good. If you were therefore to say to me, Socrates, this time, we will let you go, but on this condition, that you cease from carrying on this search of yours and from philosophy. If you are found following these pursuits again, you shall die. I say, if you offered to let me go on these terms, I should reply, Athenians, I hold you in the highest regard and love, but I will obey God rather than you. And as long as I have breath and strength, I will not cease from philosophy and from exhorting you and declaring the truth to be aroused by a gadfly and to think that I am the gadfly that God has sent to the city to attack it. For I never cease from settling upon you, as it were, at every point, and rousing, and exhorting, and reproaching each man of you all day long. You will not easily find anyone else, my friends, to fill my place. It is God who has given me to our city. A mere human impulse would never have led me to neglect all my own interests, or to endure using my private affairs neglected now for so many years, while it made me busy myself unceasingly in your interest." and go to each man of you by himself, like a father or an elder brother, trying to persuade him to care for virtue. Socrates' gamble failed. The jury voted to convict 280 to 220. There was no protection of reasonable doubt, 
no requirement for unanimity. The majority voted, and it sucked. Then the trial went straight to the penalty phase. Remember, there's no judge, no law that determined punishment. Each side had the right to propose a penalty. Smelling blood in the air and the ability to annihilate their hated enemy, the prosecutors demanded that Socrates die. Typically, a convicted criminal at this point would propose exile or maybe some kind of house arrest or imprisonment. But Socrates was no typical man. In perhaps one of the gutsiest moves in the annals of death penalty cases, Socrates proposed a flabbergasting penalty. It's too rich not to recite. And what counterpenalty shall I propose to you, Athenians? What I deserve, of course, must I not? I neglected the things which most men value, such as wealth and family interests and military commands and popular oratory and all the political appointments and clubs and factions that there are in Athens. For I thought that I was really too conscientious a man to preserve my life, I engaged in these matters. I went instead to each of you to do the greatest of services. Then what do I deserve? Something good, Athenians. There is no reward, Athenians, so suitable to him as a public maintenance in the Pritaneum. Pritaneum was a public dining hall where people listened to speeches and where dignitaries were entertained. In the face of death, Socrates was claiming that the Greeks should feed him for life as a guest of honor at a banquet hall. Simply put, he had guts. Eventually, he said, he'd pay a few pennies as a fine if he must. And his guts did not impress the jury. He was sentenced to death, 360 to 140. He responded that he would not pay a real fine or be imprisoned for doing something he did not believe was wrong. And he would not go into exile on the condition of not speaking. He would rather die. I would very much rather defend myself as I did and die than as you would have me do and live. Both in a lawsuit and in war, there are some things which neither I nor any other man may do in order to escape death. In battle, a man often sees that he may at least escape from death by throwing down his arms and falling on his knees before the pursuer to beg for his life. And there are many other ways of avoiding death in every danger, if a man will not scruple to say and to do anything. But, my friends, I think that is a much harder thing to escape from wickedness than from death, for wickedness is swifter than death. And now I, who am old and slow, have been overtaken by the slower pursuer, and my accusers, who are clever and swift, have been overtaken by the swifter pursuer, which is wickedness. And now I shall go hence, sentenced by you to death, and they will go hence, sentenced by truth to receive the penalty of wickedness and evil. And I abide by this award as well as they. Perhaps it was right for these things to be so, and I think that they are fairly measured. Even in the face of that defiance, the jury set out his execution for six months. Everyone expected him to flee for his life, and everyone was wrong. His friends repeatedly tried to convince him to leave. He refused to escape, for these several reasons, he didn't ask for the exile at his sentencing. He would be undermining the state. Athens was his first parents. He would be breaking the law, and 
he would be subverting the rule of law, which was essential for Athens to survive, and he would not be able to face the gods for having betrayed Athens by fleeing. He saw that it was his duty to die, and he did by drinking hemlock, and by his death, he became immortal. As we can see, the fact that Athens was a democracy was irrelevant. Its unlimited authority, when turned against a man, was unassailable. During the course of the trial, Socrates struck on the truth. There is no man who will preserve his life for long, either in Athens or elsewhere, if he firmly opposes the wish of the people and tries to prevent the commission of much injustice and illegality in the state. And the lesson here? A democracy with unlimited power can crush a man just as easily as a pharaoh, an emperor, or a dark wizard. And on that incredibly uplifting note, back to you, Judge Warren. Thanks, Mike Gerard. May Hemlock never touch your lips. That, after all, would not be reasonable. Skin segment reviewed how unlimited power in a democracy can crush a single person, even the wisest person of the age. As ancient Athens illustrates, the form of government does not stop tyranny, if the government itself has unlimited power. In The Rights of Man, Thomas Paine explained, quote, It is not because a part of the government is elective that makes it less a despotism. If the person so elected possess afterwards, as a parliament, unlimited powers. Election in this case becomes separated from representation, and the candidates are candidates for despotism." Unquote. But could such a power oppress an entire nation? Oui, mon chéri. Being a Francophile, I'm keeping the French Revolution to myself. But being a Francophile does not uh, provide me with a particularly good grasp of French, so I apologize now for massacring the language as I go along. We have addressed the French Revolution before, so I'll keep it to a refresher to set the scene. Before 1789, French society was divided into three estates. The top and first estate was the clergy, the second estate was the nobility, and the third estate was the common people, that is, everyone else. The king, of course, was on the apex of this pyramidical structure. To make a very complicated and fascinating story very short, yes, we could create an entire podcast series just on the French Revolution, aspiring podcasters, something for you to think about, the century-old three-estate system broke down and was vanquished. And on August 26, 1789, the French National Assembly adopted the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen. It included a declaration that, quote, men are born and remain free and equal in rights, unquote. It declared that liberty, property, security, and resistance to oppression were, quote, natural and inalienable rights, unquote. It protected due process, equality, freedom of speech, and press, and prohibited taxation without public consent. Property was declared sacred and inviolable, and religious freedom guaranteed. That same year, as the General Assembly was working on a new constitution, Deputy Marquis Gerard Lally Tolendal advocated for separation of powers within the government because of the threat posed by, quote, a single power, which should end by devouring all, unquote. The French seemed to heed this advice when the Constitution of 1791 established a constitutional monarchy. 
it included the separation of powers among the executive, legislative, and judicial authorities. The king was the king of the French, not France. He was given a temporary veto over certain legislation. It established an elective judiciary, as well as an assembly of 745 deputies who could appoint certain public officials. A new Declaration of Rights, less vigorous than the 1789 version, required property requirements to vote and established public schools and protection of rights of free speech, of press, of writing, and assembly. This constitution, however, was short-lived. On August 10th of 1792, under pressure from the mobs of the Parisian Commune, the assembly suspended the king's power and had him arrested and called for a convention to draft a new constitution and govern the country while it was working on it. The convention was to be elected by universal suffrage, and the Legislative Assembly dissolved itself on September 20, 1792, and the convention, composed of 749 elected delegates, met for the first time that very day. The next day, the convention abolished the monarchy, and the day after that, it decreed that all public documents be dated as the, quote, first year of liberty, unquote, or, quote, year one of the republic, unquote. Remember 1984? The French did one better. They changed time. Back in 1789, Abbe Sailly was a member of the clergy, but very sympathetic to the Third Estate, and he had been elected as a member of the Third Estate in the Estates General. He had published a pamphlet entitled, What is the Third Estate? In the pamphlet, he argued that the people should control all. Quote, It is sufficient for its will to be manifested for all positive law to vanish before it. In whatever form the nation wills, it is sufficient that it does will. All forms are good, and its will is always the supreme law. Unquote. This idea that the unadulterated will of the people should rule echoed French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau's expression of the social contract, not compact, and it was coming to fruition, replacing the unfettered power of the king with the unfettered power of the nation. No laws, constitutional barriers, or unalienable rights would stand in the way of the will of the people. On September 25, 1792, the Republic was formally declared, quote, one and indivisible, unquote, and the convention created a committee to propose a new constitution. Soon the assembly broke into different blocks. Consider them like informal political parties. We will focus on two major parties. The first was La Menton, that is the Mountain, and also been dubbed the Jacobins. The second was the Girondins. The mountain was called the mountain because when the members sat in the assembly, they looked like the shape of a mountain. The Girondins were named after the local government from which many of their members came, the Gironde in southwest France. From December 11th to January 15th of 1793, the assembly tried the king for conspiracy to commit crimes against the nation. He was convicted by the overwhelming margin of 683 to 39. Like Athens, the same assembly decided the penalty, and after a heated and tremendous debate stretching over January 16th and 17th, and a very close vote of 387 to 334, the assembly sentenced the king to death. He was executed on January 21st, 1793. Notice there was no trial in a courtroom. This was a political trial in the assembly. Since the 1791 Constitution was no longer in effect, after all, they just chopped off the king's head so there couldn't be a constitutional monarchy, there was no separation of powers. All power was vested 
in the assembly. It had a single house. It was not like in England with a House of Commons and a House of Lords, or in America with a House of Representatives and a Senate. No, here there was a single assembly where the majority at any given time had absolute power and wield that power it did. They disregarded Lali Taladon's mourning of vesting all power in one body. Although the assembly was united in enacting a revolution through French government and society, that sentiment was not universally shared. Royalist, Catholic opponents, and those favoring local control were revolting or demonstrating against Paris. Meanwhile, the nations of Europe were fighting the French in the field to halt the revolution. On March 19, 1793, the assembly reacted by unanimously passing a decree that anyone participating in rebellions or demonstrations against army recruitments were to be summarily executed within 24 hours of capture. So much for due process and liberty. In fact, the Declaration of Rights of 1793 specifically provided that, quote, any individual who usurps the sovereignty of the people shall be instantly put to death by free men, unquote. Be accused, and you had the right to die. Just a few weeks later, on April 6th of 1793, the Assembly created the Committee of Public Safety. One of the leading figures of the mountain, Georges Daton, took control of the committee and pushed through the law the maximum, that is, price controls, increased the war posture of the country, and worked to put down the reactionary revolt in the Vendée. Less than two months later, on June 2nd of 1793, the Assembly expelled the Girondin, quote, enemies of the people, unquote. The Girondins, who had been leading the assembly until just a few months before, were seen to be too timid against the forces arrayed against the assembly. The mountain had the assembly surrounded by troops, and they arrested many of their former colleagues, and several leaders were executed. Thomas Paine, author of Common Sense, The Crisis, and The Rights of Man, was aligned with the Girondins and arrested, but by a quirk of fate, he escaped execution. This oppression sparked additional revolts against Paris across the country. The mountain doubled down. In fact, the mountain then turned on itself. Extreme leaders attacked their own allies if they thought someone was too moderate for the times. They removed Danton from the Committee of Public Safety on July 10th of 1793 and reduced the committee to nine members, seven of whom were ardent leftists who wanted to impose their will through bloodshed. Maximilien Robespierre, a rising star of the mountain, declared in a local Jacobin club that France needed a, quote, government of terror, unquote. Robespierre was awarded by being appointed to the Committee of Public Safety on July 27th of 1793. On September 5th of 1793, the convention declared that, quote, terror is the order of the day, unquote. It suspended the Constitution of 1793, which had just been approved in August, passed a new law of the maximum, a violation of which was treason and punishable by death, reconstituted a committee of general security, which hunted out traitors throughout a network of spies. They were the, quote, guardians of the people, unquote. And the assembly passed a new law of suspects in September. Anyone, by actions, remarks, writings, and similar conduct, could be deemed a, quote, enemy of the people, unquote, and accused of treason. In search of ideological purity, the convention expelled former nobles, immigres, and their relatives from the convention and public office. Robespierre wanted to create a republic of virtue. 
They executed Queen Marie Antoinette in October and a set of revolutionaries who they deemed too moderate, several of whom were heroes in the early day of the revolution. Representatives on mission were convention delegates who were appointed by the Committee of Public Safety or the convention. They supervised local governments and dictated strategy to generals. They had sweeping powers. They could fire any military commanders, local officials, and judges. They created new courts and ordered executions. They were omnipresent and could do whatever the hell they wanted. The Committee of Public Safety declared in its instruction of November 16, 1793, that, quote, a revolutionary agent may do anything, unquote. The rule of law degenerated completely into the boundless rule of the majority. In December of 1793, the convention declared, quote, revolution until the peace, unquote. On February 5, 1794, Robespierre released the report on the principles of public morality, which laid out the grand ambitions of this revolution. We desire an order of things where all base and cruel passions are enchained by the laws, all beneficent and generous feelings awakened by them, where ambition is the desire to deserve glory and to be useful to one's country, where distinctions arise only from equality itself, where the citizen is subject to the magistrate, the magistrate to the people, the people to justice, where the country secures the welfare of each individual, and each individual proudly enjoys the prosperity and glory of this country, where all minds are enlarged by the constant interchange of republican sentiments and by the need of earning the respect of a great people, where industry is an adornment to the liberty that ennobles it, and commerce is the source of public wealth not simply of monstrous riches for a few families. We wish in a word to fulfill the course of nature, to accomplish the destiny of mankind, to make good the promise of philosophy, to absolve providence from the long reign of tyranny and crime. May France, once illustrious among people of slaves, eclipse the glory of all free peoples that have existed, become the model to the nations, the terror of oppressors, the consolation of the oppressed, the ornament of the universe. And in sealing our work with our blood, may we ourselves see at least the dawn of universal felicity gleam before us. That is our ambition. That is our aim. Louise Antoine saint Joux was Robespierre's strongest ally, dubbed the Angel of Death for his bloodlust against the purported enemies of the Revolution. He announced that because the will of the people was supreme, that political parties in opposition to the government were just individual people who questioned the government, were criminals, guilty of treason, and worthy of execution. Quote, Every party is criminal for it is a form of isolation from the people and the popular societies, a form of independence from the government. Every faction is criminal because it neutralizes the power of public virtue. The sovereignty of the people demands that the people be unified. It is therefore opposed to factions, and all faction is a criminal attack upon the sovereignty. Unquote. Since opposition to the government was a crime, treason... It was vital to the public that dissenters be arrested and executed. The convention established the Revolutionary Tribunal of Paris to try treason cases. It deployed the guillotine, affectionately called the National Razor, to implement public executions. 
about 50,000 people lost their heads throughout the country. But other instruments of death were also unleashed. In Lyon, they found the national razor too slow. So they tied prisoners to stakes and fired cannon upon them. At Nantin, they put enemies of the people on barges and had them sunk in the Loire River. In Toulon, they deployed firing squads. And despite popular misconceptions, 85% of the victims were neither nobles nor priests, and up to 60% were peasants or working class. Besieged by European enemies, the convention mobilized the entire country for war, the first country to really put its entire population into a war effort. The convention went headlong into recreating society. It declared forfeit lands held by enemies of the state. It created the metric system as a rational way to measure and count. It planned to create free public schools and a higher education system. It established a national library and the Louvre. It created a revolutionary calendar, 12 months, 30 days each, with three 10-day weeks for each month. Each month was renamed as part of the seasons. It eliminated Sundays because they were church holidays and they were de-Christianizing France as fast as possible. It eliminated all Christian holidays. Churches became temples of reason. Notre Dame became the scene of a gigantic festival of liberty and reason. Still, Robespierre wanted a belief in a supreme being to be able to ensure that citizens would follow the law. Meanwhile, they outlawed federalism, that is, local governments, as an act of treason. The convention in Paris had become all-powerful politically, economically, socially, and in religious matters. On March 13th, the convention passed the Laws of Ventois, promising free land to the landless. A leading opponent of the majority, Jacques René Abbeux, was arrested on the Ides of March, that's March 15th, and charged with conspiring with foreigners to overthrow the Republic. He had been vehemently attacking the convention majority for a variety of reasons, mostly because he wanted a revolution to become even more radical. The Revolutionary Tribunal had him and his allies executed via guillotine on March 24, 1794. Within a week, Robespierre then turned against Georges-Jacques Danton and his allies. A charismatic imperator of the mountain, Danton had been a key leading figure of the revolution. He was enormously popular in Paris and was known as the hero of August 10th, that would be August 10th, 1792, in which he organized the mass insurrection which overthrew the king. But that seemed like ancient history. Although he had created the Revolutionary Tribunal in Paris and had chaired the Committee of Public Safety, he tried to avoid bloodshed and moderate the revolution. Danton's efforts were futile. He was tossed off the Committee of Public Safety and played no role in the Revolutionary Tribunal. He and his allies were trying to stop the excesses of the revolution brought on by the convention. Robespierre marked him down for destruction. On March 30, 1794, Danton and his allies, including a key mountain journalist, Camille Desmoulins, were arrested. Desmoulins had played a critical part in sparking linchpin moments during the revolution. Like Danton, he was a national hero. Desmoulins and Robespierre were actually close personal friends. It mattered not. Danton, Desmoulins, and the other important revolutionary figures were put on trial. Well, a mockery of a trial. The Revolutionary Tribunal massacred due process. The defendants faced trumped-up charges of conspiracy, financial corruption, and theft. They had a mass trial of all 18 suspects, several of whom were common criminals thrown in for good measure to sully the reputation of the national heroes. Although the law required a jury of 12, 
the tribunal only impaneled seven. These seven were chosen because the tribunal knew that they would all vote to convict. One juror openly asked himself, quote, which of the two, Robespierre or Danton, is the more useful to the Republic, unquote. Danton demanded to confront his accusers and call them as witnesses. Quote, I demand to measure myself against my accusers. Let them be produced for me, and I will plunge them back into the nothingness from which they should never have emerged. Vile impostors, show yourselves, and I will tear off the mask that protect you from public condemnation. Unquote. The spectators of the trial applauded. The tribunal refused. No witness for any defendant would be permitted. Still, Danton would not back down. With a booming voice, magnetic personality, and biting rhetoric, Danton was dominating the mockery of a trial. And there was a danger that he would provoke the people to break up the trial and attack the convention. In response, the convention approved an emergency decree which forfeited his right to a defense, and the defendants were removed from the courtroom. As he was being let out, Danton boasted, I will no longer defend myself. Let me be led to death. I shall go to sleep in glory." Unquote. All of the accused were executed on April 5th, and for all of his charisma, Danton had an impressively ugly face. He told the executioner, quote, Show my head to the crowd. It is a sight worth seeing. Unquote. Robespierre pushed forward by creating the cult of the supreme being. The convention passed the law of 22 prior, which is June 10th of 1794, a new law of suspects, one could be accused for, quote, slandering patriotism, unquote, or spreading, quote, discouragement, unquote. Prisoners were allowed no defense. The only question was the sentence, and there were only two, acquittal or death. Finally, the convention had had enough. On July 18th, Robespierre and Saint-Jean tried to speak, and they were shouted down with the cries of, down with the tyrant, out with the dictator. They were arrested at the convention. They were released temporarily, but the convention then met and outlawed them, which meant that they could be shot on sight by anyone. They were arrested again. Knowing he was doomed, Robespierre tried to kill himself with a gun, but only mangled his jaw. The convention didn't even bother with the formality of a trial for Robespierre, St. Jew, and 70 other allies. And they were all executed on 10 and 11 of Thermidor. That would be July 28th and 29th of 1794. In a few years, Napoleon Bonaparte seized control of the country and the remnants of the revolution were swept away. Simply put, unlimited or absolute power in the hands of the people can be just as terrifying as that held in the hands of a single tyrant. This was firmly grasped by the founders well before the French Revolution. In two years, the French Revolution turned from protecting the people to massacring them, destroying their religion, creating a new calendar, and even a new way of counting. Well, we still had the metric system. The founders all but predicted what would happen with unlimited power vested in the people alone. Thomas Jefferson, in a summary view of the rights of British America, written in 1774, wrote, quote, History has informed us that bodies of men, as well as individuals, are susceptible of the spirit of tyranny, unquote. His reflection was of the past, but it was also prophetic in light of the French Revolution. In essence, Hobbes justified the later tyrannies of the Soviet Empire and Mao's Communist China. Both were supposedly based on the unfettered power of the people. Fascist Italy 
also subscribed to the principles that the sovereign, that is the corporate state, possessed unchecked power. In totalitarian regimes, the authority of the government overrides the rights of all of its subjects. The founders rejected the doctrine of Hobbes and adopted its opposite as a first principle, that the powers of the government are limited to those necessary to protect the unalienable rights of the people and necessary auxiliary authority. The first principle was recognized by the Declaration of Independence when it provided that, quote, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, unquote. After all, Jefferson explained, quote, it is to secure our just rights that we resort to government at all, unquote. Now, before we explore in depth the founders' beliefs, I would like to take one step back and explain the general perspective and orientation the founders had on government in general. Although government is necessary, it is not something to be relished and encouraged. Thomas Paine's Common Sense, published in 1776, it was really the closing argument for the American Revolution, may have best captured this particular American sentiment of robust skepticism regarding the role of the government in the social compact. Government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable one. Government, like dress, is the badge of lost innocence. The palaces of the kings are built on the ruins of the bowers of paradise. For were the impulses of conscience clear, uniform, and irresistibly obeyed, man would need no other lawgiver. But that not being the case, he finds it necessary to surrender up a part of his property to furnish means for the protection of the rest. Here, then, is the origin and rise of government, namely a mode rendered necessary by the inability of moral virtue to govern the world. Here, too, is the design and end of government, namely freedom and security. In light of this cautionary view of government as a necessary evil, Jefferson and the other founders were following the path laid down by English philosopher John Locke. Locke reasoned that the social compact did not vest the government with unlimited power. To the contrary, the government had no more just power than what a single individual would have had in a state of nature. Simply because everyone banded together into a social compact did not give the government more power than the individuals would have had separately. In his second treatise of civil government, Locke wrote, quote, for being but the joint power of every member of society given up to that person or assembly, which is legislator, it can be no more than those persons had in a state of nature before they entered into society and gave it up to the community, Unquote. In short, we have consented to the government to protect our inalienable rights and therefore have only granted the government such power as it needs to perform that function and auxiliary supports and nothing more. As Jefferson wrote, quote, the rights of the whole can be no more than the sum of the rights of individuals, unquote. Locke elaborated in the second treatise. When listening to this quote, please remember he defined property to include freedom of action and liberty in general. It's not just ownership of like real property and real estate and money and private goods, but the freedoms of religion, speech, press, association, the whole ball of wax. So listen carefully. The supreme power cannot take from any man any part of his property without his own consent. For the preservation of property being the end of government, and that for which men enter into society, it necessarily supposed that requires that the people should have property, without which they must be supposed to lose that by entering into society, which was the end for which they entered into it, too gross an absurdity for any man to own. 
Men, therefore, in society having property, they have such a right to the goods which by the law of the community are theirs, that nobody hath a right to take them or any part of them from them without their own consent. Without this, they have no property at all. For I truly have no property in that which another can by right take from me when he pleases, against my consent. Hence, it is a mistake to think that the supreme or legislative power of any commonwealth can do what it will and dispose of the estates of the subjects arbitrarily or take any part of them at pleasure. In other words, the social compact did not mean, as Haas would have it, that the government had unlimited power. In the years leading up to the Declaration of Independence, the idea of limited government had taken a strong hold in the colonies. Obviously, Jefferson, the framers, adopted this belief into the Declaration of Independence, but this understanding was held across the colonies. For example, Daniel Shute was a Congregationalist minister in Massachusetts and served in the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention that ratified the federal constitution. He provided colonial and then state leadership for decades. During an election day sermon delivered in 1768, he reflected that the government could not infringe on the inalienable rights of the people but was bound to protect. Civil government among mankind is not a resignation of their natural privileges, but that method of securing them, to which they are morally obligated as conducive to their happiness. In the constitution of things, they can naturally have no rights incompatible with this. A compact for civil government in any community implies the stipulation of certain rules of government. These rules or law more properly make the civil constitution. They ought in every nation to coincide with the moral fitness of things by which alone the natural rights of mankind can be secured and their happiness promoted. Because the purpose of government is to secure the unalienable rights of the people, the law should be founded on this, quote, great end, unquote, of government. And Minister Shute explained that the government can have, quote, no rightful power to act beside or counter this purpose, unquote. Thus in America, Jefferson explained, quote, our rulers can have authority over such natural rights only as we have submitted to them, unquote. In fact, Shute explained that because the only way government officials have authority to rule is through the consent of the people to secure their rights, public officials, quote, ought to be the guardians of the natural and constitutional rights of their subjects, which are here supposed to be so near the same that they were in no interfering between them. To form a civil constitution otherwise would be to establish inequity by law, unquote. That is colonial era language for saying the government that betrays its mandate to protect unalienable rights and violates those rights is evil. Powerful stuff. John Tucker, the pastor of the First Church in Newbury, Massachusetts, conveyed similar beliefs in a sermon preached at Cambridge and delivered, get this long title, to His Excellency, Thomas Hutchinson, Esquire Governor, His Honor Andrew Oliver Esquire, Lieutenant Governor, the Honorable His Majesty's Council, and the Honorable House of Representatives of the Province of Massachusetts Bay in New England, May 29, 1771. Being the anniversary for the election of His Majesty's Council for said province. That is one heck of an audience and title. Tucker was not intimidated. Like shoot, Pastor Tucker explained that the government's authority comes from the people and it is limited by the social compact. To accept the opposite Hobbesian view that the government was unlimited would subvert the whole idea of bothering with the government in the first place. It would lead to tyranny. 
Pastor Tucker continued. Suppose otherwise, and that without a delegated power and constitutional right, rulers may make laws and appoint officers for their execution and force them to effect, that is, according to their own arbitrary will and pleasure, is to defeat the great design of civil government and to utterly abolish it. It is to make rulers absolutely despotic and to subject the people to a state of slavery because it will then be in the power of the rulers by virtue of new laws and regulations they shall please to make to subvert and annihilate the present constitution and to strip the subject of every kind of privilege. It is essential to a free state, for without this it cannot be free, that no man shall have his property taken from him, but by his own consent, given by himself or others deputed to act for him. Let it be supposed, then, that rulers assume a power to act contrary to this fundamental principle. What must be the consequence? If by such usurped authority they can demand and take a penny, by the same authority they may a pound, or even the whole substance of the subject, so as to make him wholly dependent on their pleasure, having nothing that he can call his own. And what is he then but a perfect slave? This, at first view, is manifestly inconsistent with all just conception of freedom and is the very essence of arbitrary and tyrannical power. Samuel West, another highly influential clergyman in an election day sermon given in Boston in 1776, concurred. West, the leader of the Congregational Church at Dartmouth, Massachusetts, was widely understood to be one of the most learned men of his time. He served as a member of the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention of 1780 and the Massachusetts Convention that ratified the federal constitution in 1788. He took the idea one step further and explained that even if a government was somehow vested with unlimited authority by the people, that such an attempt was null and void under natural law. Tyranny and arbitrary power are utterly inconsistent with and subversive of the very end and design of civil government and directly contrary to natural law, which is the true foundation of civil government and all political law. Consequently, the authority of a tyrant is of itself null and void. For as no man can have a right to act contrary to the law of nature, it is impossible that any individual or even the greatest number of men can confer a right upon another of which they themselves are not possessed. That is, no body of men can justly and lawfully authorize any person to tyrannize over and enslave his fellow creatures or do anything contrary to equity and goodness. As magistrates have no authority but what they derive from the people, whenever they act contrary to the public good and pursue measures destructive of the peace and safety of the community, they forfeit their right to govern the people. Here it is. The American view rejects ancient Greece and the French revolutionary government of the convention. Democratic tyranny is still tyranny. It violates the foundation of the social compact, justice, and natural law. The founders believed that the government was instituted to protect unalienable rights and that a just government should be limited to that purpose, and violating those rights forfeited the right of the government to rule. Thelopolis Parsons wrote the Essex Result, which was published in Newburyport, Massachusetts in 1778. 
It was written in response to a proposed Massachusetts Catholopolis Parsons wrote the Essex Result, which was published in Newburyport, Massachusetts in 1778. It was written in response to a proposed Massachusetts Constitution. The Essex Result was adopted by Essex County towns and cities. Parsons was an attorney and served as the Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. He wrote the result when he was just 28. The result is intensely interesting. It's really a preview of the Federalist Papers. He explained that not only would an unlimited government be null and void, but it would be better not to have a government at all under such circumstances. When confronted with a tyrannical government, the people are told that tyranny is preferable to no government at all, a proposition which is to be doubted unless considered under some limitation. Surely a state of nature is more excellent than that, in which men are meanly submissive to the haughty will of an imperious tyrant, whose savage passions are not bounded by the laws of reason, religion, honor, or regard to his subjects, and the point to which all his movements center is the gratification of a brutal appetite. As in a state of nature, much happiness cannot be enjoyed by individuals, so it has been conformable to the inclinations of almost all men to enter into a political society so constituted as to remove the inconveniences they were obligated to submit to their former state, and at the same time to retain all those natural rights, the enjoyment of which would be consistent with the nature of a free government and the necessary subordination to the supreme power of the state. Contrary to Hobbes, the founders believed that free men would be better off having no government at all versus a tyranny, regardless if it was a single or collective tyrant thus directly opposed to the proposition that the collective society is all-powerful. A just government has only the authority individuals have relinquished to it. Indeed, in addressing the American situation, Jefferson himself explained that the founders were not seeking a representative form of tyranny. Quote, Can any one reason be assigned why 160,000 electors in the island of Great Britain should give law to our four millions in the states of America? every individual of whom is equal to every individual of them in virtue, in understanding, and in bodily strength? Were this to be admitted instead of being a free people, as we have hitherto supposed, and mean to continue ourselves, we should suddenly be found the slaves, not of one, but of 160,000 tyrants, distinguished too from all others by this singular circumstance, that they are removed from the reach of fear, the only restraining motive which may hold the hand of a tyrant." Unquote. The founders then unequivocally declared that the social compact did not justly the founders then unequivocally declared that the social compact did not justify absolute authority, but to the contrary, required that the government be limited. Some key takeaways from this episode. The first principle of the social compact leads to one of two logical positions. The Hobbes view that because the people have consented to the government, the government can do no wrong and has absolute authority or the Locke view that because the people have consented to the government to protect their unalienable rights, the authority of the government is limited to protecting their unalienable rights. The founders embrace Locke and limited government. When a government acts to violate the unalienable rights of its people, it subverts the social compact, exceeds its just authority, and forfeits its right to rule. Oppression, terror, mass murder, and tyranny of unlimited government can occur in any form of government, 
from the living god of Pharaoh, the fictional worlds of Middle Earth, Oceania, and the Galactic Empire, to the direct democracy of Greece and the representative government of revolutionary France. As Americans, we are very fortunate to be lot. As Americans, we are very fortunate to be blessed to live in a time and place such as this that is dedicated to limited government. Fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Please join us next time when we continue our exploration of the Declaration of Independence, in particular, quote, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation such principles and organizing its powers such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, unquote. Until then, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, Patriots, for listening to Patriot Lessons. I'm David Drewicki, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give those five golden stars. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google, Anchor, and many other platforms. You can also learn more by visiting PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook on our Patriot Week Foundation page and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If you are interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments, please send us a message on the social media platforms I mentioned or connect with Judge Warren directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide. How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americassurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.